If you've got your Bibles there, continue to have that open at James chapter 1. Probably helpful if I have one as well. So James chapter 1, you've got your Bible, your Bible up. There's also an outline on the back of the news. So today we begin a brand new series in this amazing letter. And really incredible as we uh, dig into it and uh, really think about what are the ways in which we seek to faithfully follow Jesus every day of our lives. So let me pray and ask God for help with that. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the extraordinary privilege it is that we can know you, know of your love, love you, and serve you with our lives. Lord, would you please be at work this very day, that in the power of your Spirit, that you'll be growing us, shaping us, especially in response to trials, that in your power, we may be able to consider it joy and that you might continue your work of maturing us for your good purposes. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we shared the news and people heard that this term, so term three, that we'd be looking and exploring the letter of James, Many people told me that they were very excited about this, really excited probably for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, I suspect some of those reasons are things like the letter is short, so that's a real plus. Some people were excited by that. The letter is also really punchy. It is full of direction. In fact, there are only 108 verses in this letter, but there are 54 commands so if you like being told what to do, of course you're going to love the letter of James. The letter is also really practical. So even though there being 2,000 years that separate us and James, it resonates readily speaking into the challenges of what it looks like to live faithfully following Jesus today. And the final reason I suspect that people are really excited about this letter is that it is written by one of Jesus' own brothers. It's short, punchy, practical, and carries authority. And whilst some people might think that a letter written by a brother of Jesus is not a cause of confidence, but actually concern, you know, it sets off some sort of alarm bells in your head thinking, hang on a second, written by Jesus' brother, this has conflict of interest all over it, uh, it actually turns out that sometimes your family aren't going to be your biggest fans. And especially so, not least, when you are making extraordinary claims about yourself. Like, you are the long-awaited king, and in fact, God himself. When my only brother, so who's two and a half years younger than me, when we were at high school together, one of the things that he most disliked was when he was mistaken for me, for his older brother. In fact, he had developed a strategy to tackle this conundrum that came up quite frequently, and it was that whenever a teacher would call him by my name, Adam, instead of his name, David, he simply would not respond... <laughs> even if they kept prompting him over and over and over again. 
And look, that's fair enough, isn't it? Because he's not me, he's got a name, and we're not the same person. Yet think about that for a moment, that as James opens up this letter, as Jesus' brother opens up this letter, he pins, he anchors his entire identity to Jesus. So would you have a look at James chapter 1, verse 1? It begins with, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So note what's not there. James doesn't begin by pulling the I'm Jesus' brother card, so you better listen to me. He says, no, who am I? I am a servant. You could also translate that I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know a lot of older siblings who often like to treat the younger siblings as slaves, but James rejoices in it. So here is James, who grew up a good monotheistic Jew, believing in one God, and here he is saying, to serve God with full devotion is to serve Jesus with your whole life because he is the Christ, he is the Lord, he is God himself. But it wasn't always that way with James. In fact, before Jesus' crucifixion, during Jesus' three years of ministry, his family were completely dubious about Jesus' claims. And so we're told, you might recall in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. We learn in John chapter 7 that Jesus' own brothers, and so that includes James, Jesus' own brothers did not follow him. For Jesus to be crucified, well, that would have brought incredible shame on his family. Yet now, as James writes this letter, as one of the key leaders in the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, he not only thinks that Jesus is the long-awaited king and God himself, but James goes on to be martyred for upholding the claims about Jesus. So that's a massive turnaround, isn't it? So, so how does James go from past sceptical sibling before the crucifixion to present pillar of the church, proclaiming the good news even onto his own death? Because in between that, James became convinced of who Jesus was because he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. And so I don't know if you recall, there's an amazing detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, this James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, that is Paul. And so what we see is that after this encounter... 
James sets about working through the implications of Jesus' teaching, death and resurrection with the desire that every Christian would get real with their faith. That the news that Jesus is the risen Lord and King would transform every aspect of our day-to-day. That's James's focus, that Christians would have a living, visible and fruitful faith. Living, visible and fruitful faith. That's what we're really exploring in this series, real faith and real life. And James begins, not, not in sort of a quiet way, but by diving right into the deep end, showing us that how we face trials, the tough stuff of life, will be one of the most significant determining factors on how we bear fruit maturely for Jesus. So, in the wisdom of James, he says, that in the face of trials, we should consider it joy and ask for wisdom. Two points. Consider it joy and ask for wisdom. First, in the face of trials, we should consider it joy. Would you look with me from verse 2? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, we don't know the precise nature of the trials of those to whom James writes. Obviously, they knew the trials that they were experiencing. But as you read the letter, there's a few clues that are scattered throughout the the chapters. It's likely that they were facing trials of religious persecution. We know that to be true. They were facing trial of poverty and also legal challenges, which was also tied up with persecution as well. Many are scattered from Jerusalem because at the time it was a dangerous place to be a Jewish Christian. In fact, those scattered likely included the likes of those who were told about in Acts, whom people like Saul, so before his conversion and name change to to Paul, were, were chased down. They were even followed from Jerusalem to wherever they went in order to be locked up. But regardless of whatever the circumstances were, James's point is not that if you face trials or if you encounter particular types of trials, but no, whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it joy. So he's being all-encompassing. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. So note the assumption as clear as day, It is that as a Christian, you will face trials. Therefore, it's so vital for me to say, facing trials is not a failure of your faith. So important to say, facing trials is not a failure of your faith. It's it's normative. And it is a completely bogus, false type of Christianity that claims that Christianities, Christians face no difficulties or can face no difficulties if only they have enough faith. It's, it's just not true. 
perhaps as we uh, gather here uh, today, those joining us online right now, you can reflect and know very well that you have just come through trial, or perhaps you are in, in the grip of trial, right in the thick of trial, right now. As James writes this and talks about trials, he likely has in mind both those, those normal, everyday trials of living in a messy and broken world, and also the, the types of trials of being persecuted for what we believe. He, he likely has both in mind. When I think about our community here at St. Bart's, I, I know of some of the trials that, that people are experiencing. But of course, I don't know all the trials that people are experiencing. But right now, in our community, there are people who are facing incredible pressures in their workplace. People who are experiencing really significant and weighty challenges as parents. Those who are grieving for loved ones who have died. Those experiencing short and long-term illness. Those with longings that are unfulfilled. Financial pressure, unemployment. Those who have criticism constantly, almost daily, for following Jesus from even their closest. All manner of trials. And if you're not currently in the grip of trial, or if when you reflect you think, I haven't experienced much trial, I have to say that it is inevitable. And so in light of the experience of people's challenge and the mess that we experience, surely in loving care, it seems like a terrible thing to say, well, consider it pure joy. You might think, Adam, even though you're quoting James, Adam, isn't that, a, a, isn't that painfully insensitive? Isn't that horribly invalidating of people's pain? And I want to say no. See, see, James isn't dismissing the seriousness of our struggles, not at all. He's saying that the way that we face trouble needs not be without benefit. In other parts of the Bible, of course, we're wonderfully reassured that even amidst challenge, we can delight in God's faithfulness, we can be comforted in God's presence, we can look forward to that day when every tear will be wiped away. But here, something to add to that, James is saying that we can also rest in an attitude of joy by trusting that God can even use our suffering to refine our faith and grow us in maturity. Trying to live trouble-free or just make it through is, is not the end point for a Christian. The, the reason why the way we face trouble is one of the most significant determining factors of Christian maturity is because our response to trouble will likely make us better or bitter. See, this isn't a testing to see if you have real faith. 
It's not a testing to see if you are acceptable, but it's a testing in terms of refining of the faith that already exists. So like gold being refined in the fire. It's such encouraging news that God never wastes the pain of his people. When James uh, says, so that we may be made mature and complete in verse 4, it's very easy to think that this means scoring 10 out of 10, you know, being, being perfect or blameless or, or sinless. But that's not really what it means. It means that we would be growing in our maturity in the Lord Jesus, developing the fruit that God loves to see in his children. That in response to those trials, that we wouldn't harbour resentment or let bitterness take control, that there would be a crop of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness and self-control. It's like there's an image almost implied of like a muscle that is getting stronger under pressure. Now I think heart of hearts, we all know Christians like that. In our experience, just in this community or other communities, we know Christians like that. When I think about some of the most inspiring past and present saints of our uh, community, and I reflect and I wonder about how do they get to that, that point, it, it really doesn't take too long. It doesn't take too honest of reflection to realise that it wasn't just because they were born that way. It, it wasn't because they wonderfully woke up that way one day. And it wasn't because they graduated with a special gift. No. I can almost guarantee... There, behind every face of every mature Christian, is trial. Jonathan Weihang Kwan, who is the executive director of CMS Australia, he recently, which is the Church Missionary Society, he recently wrote an article, which may not attract everyone's attention, uh, draw you in, but is the gift of stress, suffering and opposition. Now, I'm not sure many might think that suffering, stress and opposition are gifts. But as he wrote this article that the gift of stress, suffering and opposition, he so honestly admitted that he observes in his own life that he's always more prayerful when he has the megaphone of pain in his ear. I find that a very uncomfortable truth. How I wish, how I long that my faith grew in comfort. It's tempting to uh, desire a trouble-free life over costly transformation for God. That, of course, doesn't mean that those struggles are, are good. Uh, it doesn't mean we need to rush out and be pain seekers or anything like that. Of course not. But that when trials come, as they inevitably do that we can respond differently. A few weeks ago, I read of a, a family, a family or a couple who, after longing for a child for a very long time, when their first baby came along, was born at 25 weeks. And they said that when the bub arrived, in the day-to-day -day that followed for many months, they lived almost moment to moment. They had a sense at times things were just spiralling out of control. They said from moment to moment, day to day, it brought both fresh hope 
but also new obstacles. Yet remarkably, amidst that tumult, when they were giving an update on an online care page that they created as they shared in the weight of this in the context of community, as they gave one of those updates, they wrote this. All of this brings new, loads of new fears and anxieties to us, but we trust in God's faithfulness and mercy. Yes, there is fear, but we cling to hope. That's how they chose to respond. Persevering does not mean that we ignore, diminish, or try to spin bad things as good. That's not what persevering is. It means that we can, in fact, hold grief and gratitude together and not be crushed. That whenever trials come, whatever form they take, that our response wouldn't be to run from God and lose hope, but persevere with joy, confident that those trials are not the end, and delighting that God can even use difficult things, sometimes especially difficult things, for us to grow in him. If that seems just too big of an ask, the incredible news is that God gives us the power. God gives us the resource to do it. We are to ask for wisdom. So would you look with me at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James is saying, if anyone's bamboozled in knowing how to count the tough things as joy, which I think should be all of us to some degree, but if anyone is bamboozled in knowing how to count the tough things as joy, what you need, what you need more than anything is not positive spin, it's, it's not a denial of the problem, not seven simple steps. What you need is wisdom. And note, in these verses, uh, James tells us about the source of this wisdom, that it is from God, the security of this wisdom that God promises to give it to those who ask, and the way in which we are to ask. And so let's break those three things down one by one. So first, the source of wisdom is from God. Now, that sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But this is entirely countercultural. James is saying that instead of searching for the answer or insight within, you have to look up to God. Of course we do, because wisdom isn't the same as being clever or being strong, but, how, but understanding how to live God's way in God's world. Therefore, if God is the source of wisdom, and if he defines how we should live, why would we cut him out of the equation? Such good news that as we wrestle in understanding how to live God's way in God's world, it's not a riddle to figure out um, who might be best placed to shed some light on this situation. We must not cut God out of the equation. It'd be a bit like going to a shop and uh, not being able to find the thing that you seek, but absolutely refusing to ask the person who stacked the shelf. That'd be madness, wouldn't it? Why would we do that with God? I've got a few hunches. 
Maybe because sometimes in the face of trial, we actually resist depending on him. In, in the face of trials, we can resent that God allowed it to happen. In, in the face of trial, it can seem too scary, too confronting to recognise our own creaturely limits. But I want to say to you, it is the most liberating news that when we are confronted with the stark reality of how much we cannot change, it actually allows us to recognise in our need that there is one indeed on whom we can depend and rejoice that if you go to God and ask for wisdom, it is secure. God promises to give it. So, no, James is emphatic that when you seek God's wisdom and knowing how to face trial with joy, God gives generously. So he's not stingy with it. He's not rationing it out. It's not scarce. God is not running out of wisdom, okay? So you can have great confidence in that. But also, we know that God gives indiscriminately. James says, without finding fault, it will be given to you. So God is not setting us up for failure. God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't, isn't willing to equip us for. He wants to give us the wisdom we need, and he even tells us how we should ask. So verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, as you hear that, you might think, hang on a second, uh -huh. I knew there was a catch. Uh, didn't James just basically say that there's no screening of applicants, you know, that God gives wisdom to all? Uh, but now, here he is, apparent contradiction, seems to be implying that wisdom is conditional, that somehow it's dependent upon the quality of the ask. But hear what James is saying. James is not endorsing some sort of name it and claim it approach to wisdom. He's not saying, look, if you want wisdom, you've really, really got to impress God with your, your confidence of asking. Nor is he saying, look, if you ever have any doubts, then you're not going to get wisdom. This is not simply the normal ups and downs of faith. But he's talking about having a split allegiance in our ultimate devotion between God and something else. This is sort of like, on a very big scale, a two-way bet, sort of a spiritual hedge between God and something else. It'd be a bit like that during the week when there was the uh, deciding game for the state of origin, that as one of the players runs onto the field, that they say, well, actually, tonight I'm going to play for both teams. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, no, James says that these people are double-minded. They're unstable not just occasionally, in all they do. They're consistently inconsistent in who they trust, of supposedly wanting God's wisdom, but going elsewhere to get it. So that's the image of the wave, of course, that is just getting blown about by the wind, going whichever way that the wind is, is going. Not willing to trust in the character of who God is, not willing to let go of the ways of the world, not willing to let God interfere and shape their lives. Not willing to do any of those things when we have the greatest reason to depend upon the one 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. About five years ago now, I remember hearing, receiving the news that one of our, our members, one of our most senior members, Dot Edwards, had experienced an incredible tragedy in her family. Dot was approaching 100, and she was one of the most phenomenal examples of persevering through trial that I have ever met, all sorts of things in her life. And as I called her that day, I remember it so vividly, I remember exactly where I was when I made that call, I wondered if in the face of yet another loss, in the face of yet another thing which was so hard and so heartbreaking, I wondered how she would be. I was ready to console and comfort her with the good news of Jesus, of the goodness of God, of uh, the future that awaits us where every tear will be wiped away. But when she answered the phone and I simply asked, how are you? She immediately responded, Adam, I do not understand in the face of these things, in the face of trials such as this, how people cope without knowing the Lord. She continued to say, she goes, when you reach my age, you have lost almost everyone whom you love dear. But the Lord cannot be taken away from me. She didn't need to deny the reality of the pain. She in no way sought to diminish the weight of the tragedy in order that she would know the joy of the Lord. She just had to keep running and resting in the one who gave her the power to persevere. That's wisdom. And all we need to do is ask. So why don't we do that? Gracious God, we are so thankful for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love, and for your grace. We thank you so much that in you we find someone who is perfectly able to sympathise with us in every way. Lord, we thank you for the witnesses in our life who have been shaped, who have responded to trial in such faithful ways and for the amazing impact that they have had on us and our walk in you. Lord, particularly pray today, right now, for those who've just come through a season of great trial or who are in the grip, in the thick of trial right now. Lord, how I pray that they would know your comfort and your peace and your presence. Lord, may they with a great security know the future which awaits. But especially today, Lord, I pray 
that you would give us all wisdom, that we would know how to respond in the face of trial, that we would even consider it joy, that you might continue your work in us, growing us in maturity for your good purposes. Lord, thank you so much that we can run to you. Thank you so much that we can ask for the power from you that we can respond in the day-to-day. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.